Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei te whakarongo mai koe ki tō tātou au hurihuri, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with our changing world on RNZ National. And now, here's some breaking ecology news. It's conference time of year for scientific societies and around the country. Researchers are practising their PowerPoint presentations and public speaking. Alison heard many interesting things at the recent New Zealand Ecological Society conference in Christchurch, which involved over 300 people and lasted for three days. To give you just a taste of what was presented, here she is with a mini ecological conference. Two things stood out strongly for me at the New Zealand Ecological Society conference this year. Some sometimes disturbing long-term trends in our native flora and fauna. And new takes on old rodents. We'll get to the rats and mice later, but first, there's been some fascinating work analysing long-term data sets. Interestingly, some of this data has been collected almost accidentally by students on an annual ecology field trip in one case and a single scientist in another. There's also a large citizen science effort by members of the Ornithological Society of New Zealand, who, in the 1970s and then again in the early 2000s, collected bird records for two atlases of bird distribution. Susan Walker at Landcare Research has been looking at what changed in the 25 years between the two surveys, and what she's found has her worried. I was actually looking at changes in production landscapes, and we wanted to have a look to see if there were any changes we could relate to land use initially. And then because we did this big exercise to take out some of the biases to get to do with sampling, we had to do it for all the birds. And then I realised that this wasn't a production landscape story. This was actually a forests and inland wading bird story. The changes were so big and so striking. And it was the first time that we'd been able to make that comparison over 25 years um, across the whole fauna, and so I realised it was going to be bigger than that. So you say it's striking. Tell me about some of the more striking things you found. Forest birds in the 1970s were very concentrated into our remaining forests, so they'd, they'd virtually disappeared from production landscapes and settled landscapes, and, but they were still in forests, and what we've seen since the 1970s is a, is a real emptying out of those forests. And one of the most striking patterns is that it's not just any birds, it's New Zealand's deep endemic birds. By that I mean it's New Zealand's birds that occur nowhere else in the world and also those that are in higher taxonomic levels like orders, families and subfamilies that don't occur everywhere else in the world. So they're species that have evolved here longest and so that they are the biodiversity that New Zealand adds to the world. And it's, it's really those species where the greatest losses have occurred and they've been occurring in forests and... That's not because forests aren't their natural habitats, it's because they were already lost before that from production landscapes. And 
So that's an, that's predators. That's got to be predators because there's not much land cover change happening there. So these deep endemics, what species are they? So the order level endemics, like Kiwi are our, our deepest endemic. They, they're um, endemic at the order level. That order of birds just occurs nowhere else in the world. And they um, took a big dive in between the 1970s and the early 2000s on both islands. So big populations became really small. Riflemen are one of our two only remaining wrens. We used to have six or seven of them. And they are just getting laced out of our forests, and that's probably rats. So they're a, an endemic family. If we go down to the subfamily level, I've, I've put blue duck there. That's a duck so different that nobody knows where to put it on a global phylogeny. And um, it took a, a really big hit. It's quite extraordinary to see where it was in the 1970s and how much of those populations have been lost. Kokako? Kokako also, it was, um, it had disappeared by the 1970s from the South Island, but in the North Island it was still over, you know, across a number of forest patches and it's basically down. By the time of the second atlas it was down to only a few forest remnants. So that's with the forest birds. What about birds and other habitats? The other very striking pattern that leaps out of those data is in the wading birds, skulls and terns. So there are about 13 or 15 taxa and some of them are New Zealand endemics and some of them are native um, but not endemic and they breed on the coasts and they breed in inland South Island mainly and it's the ones that are endemic and that breed almost exclusively in the inland South Island like banded dotterel, uh, black-fronted tern, um, black-billed gull that have really done a very big sort of population crash and range contraction in the last 25 years. And so it's, it's not the birds along the coast that um, the Atlas shows trends in, it's the birds that breed in the inland South Island basins. And um, the worrying thing about that is that they're not only being hit by predators at the moment, they're being hit by massive scale land use change, um, which affects both the riverbeds of the riverbed breeding birds and it's also affecting large areas of breeding habitat, for example, for banded dotterel. And these are not birds that, that breed anywhere else in the world. They only breed in New Zealand in the inland South Island basins, and so that is their only habitat. We don't have islands to move them to when their populations decline, so that's something that that the atlas data really show up very clearly and it's across um, seven or eight taxa and they've all done the same huge contraction. What's interesting about your work is that it's taken citizen science that wasn't even intended to provide this kind of analysis but you've managed to wring out of it some something that should really be ringing alarm bells. That's true and I think it's not true that this wasn't what the atlas was intended for. In fact I think this was the holy grail of the atlas and I think this is this is why the Ornithological Society have done this. The, the trick is that it's actually very difficult and it's really only now that we have fast computers and the right sort of occupancy modelling framework which has been developed quite recently that we can take these data and, and account robustly for those differences in efforts. So it's actually something that um, I think was always intended but some of the tools have only just become available. And it's, it's, it's still quite hard even for statisticians to work with those, those data. So there's this big gap between citizens collecting data and actually revealing robust patterns out of those data. Now from long-term bird records to plants. Beginning in 1980, now-retired University of Auckland botanist John Ogden began taking Stage 2 and 3 students to the Karonga Valley in the Coromandel 
to teach them how to identify native plants and carry out basic vegetation monitoring. Now I know this because I've been one of those students. These autumn field trips have been an annual event for 35 years, and Bruce Burns and George Perry have now taken all that data and analysed how the forest has been changing. But before we get to that, Bruce explains the longer history of change in the valley. Essentially it's been forested for you know, thousands of years, but we know that at the time that Māori arrived in New Zealand um, around 800 years ago that there was a period of deforestation uh, that occurred at that time through a series of small discrete fires that occurred in the valley. After that we also know, and there's, there's a lot of history around the logging that occurred in the Karanga Valley at, in, around the turn of the 19th century from about uh, 1870 to 1920 and prodigious amounts of cowrie timber were removed from the valley, huge amounts. There's still some original forest left uh, that they didn't log but you know, huge areas were, were logged, uh, there was the effect of the flooding uh, caused by the dams. Um, so, so it was a, a period of huge forest destruction at that time. The last event which has really impacted the forests has also been the, the um, arrival of introduced mammals, particularly possums which arrived in that area probably around the 1960s, 1970s in small numbers, but they reached a sort of a peak possum density around 1980 and that uh, sort of swept up the Coromandel. They targeted particular species of tree and uh, so we've seen some of the impact of those, uh, those introduced mammals on the forest as well. OK, so what are the most significant changes you've seen then in the 35 years? What's, what's happened? Sure. Some of the, the changes that we've seen are somewhat predictable. We've seen trees that, that are like pioneer species coming in after the logging, um, so they're growing old and now are starting to senesce and die from the forest. And uh, trees that are more common in old-growth forest, they are increasing, so we're getting more tawa and podocarps. So um, Karnuka is one of the ones that's slowly disappearing? Yeah, so that was one of the pioneer species that came in um, after the logging. But we have, the two things that have, have stood out to us in, in looking at the changes on Kauranga, one is that even though there were prodigious amounts of kauri that came out of um, Kauranga in the logging era, the kauri is not coming back in anything like the densities that must have occurred in back at that time, and we're not entirely sure why that is. Um, carries uh, often comes in after disturbance, there was sort of plenty of that, um, and carries is still present in small stands throughout the forest um, in Kauranga, but it's nothing like the stands that must have occurred at that time. Um, and the second big change um, we've seen is uh, when John uh, put in these plots in the 1980s, koikoi was, was a dominant canopy tree in some of those plots, and, but it's also very palatable possums, and uh, in those plots where we had koikoi, um, the, the koikoi has been removed completely. What's happened with the tree ferns there? So with the tree ferns, uh, the two main species that we're, we're seeing dramatic changes in. One is with uh, mamaku, which is a, a tall, the tall black tree fern um, that often comes up as a pioneer. It comes up on the edge of forest. Um, and it's also uh, known to be eaten by possums. They, they browse the, the frond ends. That also has declined massively in the forest. But the other tree fern, the punga, the silver tree fern, which people will be familiar with, uh, we've seen an, uh, a rapid increase in abundance of that of the silver tree fern, whether that's in response to the loss of some of those canopy species or some sort of opening up of the canopy, we're not, we're not too sure, but there's certainly been a dramatic increase in the abundance and density of, of silver tree fern in the forest. So we've got a forest that's maturing, we've got a forest that's being affected by possums, and I imagine these are things that you might not have necessarily picked if you were just walking through the forest. Yeah, I often think that you know when we look at a forest, we, it seems like a static entity, that it's very difficult to see change occurring in the forest. It seems like, like a rock, you know, it just stays as it is. And forests change at a, at a very slow rate, so we're, we're looking at changes that occurred over 30 years. Um, so we are seeing these, these changes, but they are, they are reasonably gradual. 
forests um, operate at a, at a different timescale from humans. I mean, that's an important point that I think you made at the conference yesterday. So forests are not static. They're just in a, in a constant state of disturbance. Well, they are, and, and um, one of the paradigms that, that a lot of forest ecologists go by is that forests are just recovering from their last disturbance and, um, and waiting for another disturbance to, to reset them back to, a, to an earlier time. But it sounds as if this forest might not reset itself back to being a Cody forest. No, and that's what I, uh, we're a bit puzzled by. Uh, one of the ideas we have is perhaps the cowrie, the dense cowrie that, that the, the early loggers found was actually in response to the earlier uh, Maori burning that occurred you know, uh, many centuries ago. And perhaps that, that was a catalyst that allowed cowrie to, to establish densely in that landscape. And of course, we've had a different type of disturbance uh, with the, uh, the logging that occurred around the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and so you know, we, we haven't had that, um, that same forest composition develop. The other thing that occurs to me is this is a real poster child, really, for, for long-term ecology. Like, ecology happens over long time frames. Yes, it does, and, and you know, the, there's a huge value in having these plots or these measurements that we, we return to over long periods of time. Um, otherwise, you know, we just don't know what's going on in the forest. The third paper presented at this year's New Zealand Ecological Society conference that featured long-term data sets is one relating to moth and butterfly expert Brian Patrick, who, like all good field biologists, keeps detailed notebooks. John Sullivan at Lincoln University is involved in digitising and analysing these records, which cover 45 years, making it the longest monitoring data set for invertebrates in New Zealand. And although the work is in its early days, there are already some trends appearing. So Brian's this fantastic guy who knows all of the moths and butterflies of the country, and he's, since he was a teenager he's been recording every butterfly and moth he ever sees in these notebooks and from when he grew up as a kid in Invercargill right through to his current job here as an ecologist in Christchurch. So uh, together with Brian and a, a team of um, students, Morgan Jones and Davina Watkin, we've been busy going through all of his notebooks and turn them into digital electronic information that we can start to analyse so we can see all the changes that are going on with moths and butterflies in, in New Zealand. And there's no other data set like it and, and this is information that nobody knows. And have you got any results yet? Like overseas there are butterfly declines in, in most of the parts of the Western world that, that people have been recording these kinds of things and that's what we're seeing in Brian's data too. He talks about how these days when he goes out light trapping at night time and puts a light out and lets all the moths come into the light and he records all the moths that show up at his light traps. He doesn't see large numbers of moths like he used to back when he started. And the data is to a certain extent showing that. We're seeing declines in urban areas. Uh, we're seeing things at most hold their own in agricultural areas and some things are going down. Whereas if you go into the more natural native areas and remote areas, they're, they're going up over the course of the time, perhaps because even Brian's got better at recording, I'm not sure. But there's certainly that pattern out there that um, I think is going to come through quite alarmingly. And there was a, um, an entomologist who's now passed away, sadly, called Graham White, who did a similar thing uh, up in the Cass area of the high country of the South Island. Uh, and he did some intensive uh, trapping of moths back in the 60s and then repeated them in the 80s. And he found 70 to 80% declines in native moths in those most intensely managed uh, areas of the high country just over those two periods of time. So all this um, evidence is pointing towards some pretty alarming changes in our moth fauna. But uh, until now, we just haven't had the numbers to back that up so that we can really take action. So you said this is a really rare thing, a long data set. Oh yeah, I know, that's right. Um, everybody talks about the value of ecological monitoring, but virtually nobody does it because it's called the Cinderella science, right? Because people wish everybody else would do it, but nobody wants to do it themselves. It takes a long, committed period of time 
usually by individuals. You have institutions don't necessarily do this very well because they tend to change and re restructure and whatnot over time. Docker's starting to do it really well now, but it's taken a long time for the Department of Conservation to catch on to this. But people like Brian, just through passion and dedication, uh, those are the people that have generated these very long data sets, and they can tell us so much about, about what's going on out there in the world. Is it telling us anything about our rare and endemic moths? Yes, just during the course of the couple of years we've been digitising his notebooks, we found um, this um, Acrocleta discariana, which is a, um, a moth. Uh, all these moths have no common names, they've just got complicated scientific names. Sorry, sorry for that. But this thing eats Matagauri with wild Irishman, it's a very prickly, spiny native plant. And until Brian found it in a reserve inland from Canterbury here, it was only known from three sites. So now we have four sites only where this moth is found. The female doesn't fly, and they're only found on old-growth Matagari stands that haven't been burned off, and there are hardly any of those left. So there are moths like that that are just sort of teetering right there on the edge, and we really need to know where those populations are so we can look after them if we want to keep those around. Some moths spend their entire lives inside one leaf, just a caterpillar just mines inside and makes a little trail inside a single leaf on a plant. And there's this one Calptilia. It doesn't even have a proper name yet, but it was found initially in 1961 by Alan Esler. He's a botanist. He found it in a herbarium sheet collected in Fielding in Wanganui uh, and didn't know what it was. And Brian has been looking for this thing. It's, it's found on this relatively rare native plant called Decridium parvifolium. It's another thing without a common name. <laughs> but anyway, this is a rare plant. And it's got this rare insect that only feeds on it. This botanist had noticed in a herbarium. And Brian's been hunting for it for ages, and in 2013 he found adults of it flying around on a tocridium in the, in the Christchurch Botanical Gardens of all places. Uh, and since when, then he's figured out that the plants originally came from Price's Valley, which is a piece of old-growth forest on Banks Peninsula. And so he's gone there and found it there. And he's also found it in um, Rakaia Island. There's a single individual of this plant on Rakaia Island, and sure enough, that moth is there eating the leaves of this one... <laughs> as far as we can tell, one individual of this plant on Rakaia Island left. So, so now we have the adults. It's a very pretty little moth, um, but you know it's, it takes a lot of dedication and the right experts to find these things. And some of these endemics are right there on the edge of extinction, it seems. So what I've been hearing at the conference from these long-term data sets is, as I've heard, wetlands and wading birds going down. I'm hearing invertebrates going down. I'm hearing forests, which are clearly always in a state of change, but they're not going back to the, being the Kauri forests that they used to be before we started mucking them up. This is sending some alarm bells about our biodiversity that we might otherwise, it just might sort of pass us by. We might not realise what's happening. Oh, that's absolutely right, yeah. There are some reasons for hope in this conference too. One is that new DNA technology will hopefully allow the experts like Brian to be complemented. If you can somehow package up Brian's knowledge uh, in DNA barcoding libraries so anybody, it's school children, right, can go on an EcoBlitz and survey some soil and get the DNA from the soil and then compare it to computer codes and find out what that species is in. You don't need an expert involved in that. The expert did the initial identification. But if you can do that, then technology can really start to expand our knowledge. But that doesn't go backwards in time, right? We still need these old long-term data sets to give us the context of where things are heading. So, so there's technology will give us some hope. We'll be able to monitor more that way. But there's a lot of things out there that we know very little about that are on the slide, it seems. Now, I know that you're a, an observant recorder of things, so do you think you're in the process of generating some more long-term data sets? <laughs> yeah, I obsessively record everything, of course. Um, so I've been doing that for 15 years now, all butterflies, all birds, all roadkill on my bike ride between Christchurch and Lincoln every day, pretty much. So <laughs> I know it's not normal. I mean, Brian would admit that he's not normal either, but having us around out there in, <laughs> in the wild can tell everybody quite a lot about what the environment's doing. It's really quite rewarding, too. You see some pretty neat things.
Now, while field notebooks and the like are a good record of what's happened in the natural world over the last few decades, DNA is increasingly allowing us to look back hundreds or even thousands of years. Jamie Wood from Landcare Research has found information about the diet of now-extinct moa from their coprolites. And he's now finding even more intriguing diet information from kiori coprolites. Kiori, of course, being the first of three rat species to colonise New Zealand, having arrived with early Māori. Coprolites are basically an ancient dropping, and they can be mineralised. So dinosaur coprolites, for example, turned to stone. Um, but the coprolites we work on here in New Zealand are basically dried out, so they're naturally uh, mummified. So the, the moa coprolites told us interesting things about what moa were eating. What are you looking at at the moment? When we were working on the moa coprolites, we realised that the sites we were working on actually had a whole lot of other coprolites of different sizes and shapes. And so when we sort of finished up the moa project, we went back and had a look at these other things to see what we could identify in there. And what we noticed that was that one site in particular, we had thousands and thousands of these little um, cylindrical coprolites, and they looked vaguely similar to rat coprolites. So rat poo, and was it? It was. We did some DNA work on them, and we were able to extract DNA, which um, allowed us to identify them as ratosexulins, the Pacific rat. And carbon dating of those same specimens showed that they were between 700 and 400 years old, so basically the first rats to turn up in New Zealand. So what did this kiori coprolites tell you? What, like, what are you finding? Have you started the analysis? We've only just started. We've got very preliminary data. Um, as I mentioned, we've, we've been able to get rat DNA out of the samples. We've just set up a pilot study where we're amplifying DNA from birds, plants and general eukaryotes out of these samples. And those results won't be ready for another couple of weeks, unfortunately. But the other really exciting thing we've found is we've actually screened them for moa DNA because in the 1960s, Charles Fleming came up with this hypothesis that rats might have actually had a big uh, role to play in the extinction of moa. And he based this on observations from a couple of different island groups um, in the Pacific where the Pacific rat was the only species of introduced mammal on those islands. And what what those observations were is that these rats were basically eating albatross alive on the nests. And so up to 20 rats could be feeding on a single bird at, at the same time. And these birds were basically defenceless against the rats. In one particular island, it was estimated that about 2% of the entire albatross population was killed by rats in a single breeding season. And a lot more birds abandoned their nests. And Based on this, um, Fleming sort of suggested that, well, maybe when the rat arrived in New Zealand, it was the only terrestrial mammal that was here, and perhaps they could have predated some of our large birds, such as moa, for example. And so we screened the coprolites we had. We only screened about a dozen of them, and in one of them we actually found moa DNA from the heavy-footed moa, Pachyonus elephantibus, and the DNA sequence was also strongly tied to the local moa population. And so we were able to say that that particular moa had probably been in that region that the, the rat coprolite was collected. So it wasn't contamination of the sample. It was a genuine rat that had been feeding on moa tissue. 
Now, more ranged in size a bit, so there were some smallish ones up to some very big ones. So how big was the heavy-footed mower? The heavy-footed mower was one of the shorter ones, but it was probably one of the heaviest ones. So it was really um, quite stoutly built. And we know from work in rock shelters along this gorge where we found the rat coprolites is that this particular species of mower was nesting all the way along this gorge and so it's quite possible that these rats could have been going out and feeding on these uh, birds whether it was adult birds on the nests um, or the chicks but it does seem that um, potentially the rats could have played a big role in the rapid extinction of moa. Could they have just been scavenging? It's possible and it's, it's something that's quite hard to test However, work on the modern diets of Kiori suggests that they don't scavenge a huge amount. Most of what they eat is live. And so we're starting to think about ways we could actually test that question. So you say you found evidence for more in one of the coprolites that you've looked at. What other things have they been eating? We're eagerly awaiting the DNA results. However, we do have some preliminary information by looking at these um, coprolites under a microscope. And... When you do that and you clean, clean the surface, what you see is fragments of beetles, fragments of leaf and seed material, um, but also entire feathers sticking out of the sides of these coprolites. And just by looking at the feathers, for example, and comparing them to museum specimens of our native birds, we've been able to identify some of the feathers as parakeets. So we know that, again, they're predating other bird species as well. So Kiori are quite omnivorous, so they were eating invertebrates, vegetation, birds, basically anything that went. Yep, yep, and we're expecting to see a lot of lizards as well, so the DNA will possibly be quite revealing for those groups. In the final report from this New Zealand Ecological Society mini-conference, we move from moa-eating kiore to some unexpected mice. While kiore arrived with Māori, ship rats, Norway rats and mice arrived with early Europeans. Caroline King from Waikato University has been using DNA and some historical sleuthing to find out when mice arrived here and where they came from, and she's discovered something rather surprising. We found a really interesting pattern. The mice in the far north are all uh, descended from European mice colonising probably in the 1830s or so, but the mice in the far south all carry a completely different family lineage, uh, which is from a, a Southeast Asian family of mice and we're interested to figure out why there is that difference. So how are you going about figuring it out? Well the geneticist, that's not me, but the other members of the team can tell just by looking at the uh, mitochondrial DNA, uh, the family lineages, they, they come in a number of different what's called haplotypes. By using standard genetic techniques you can work out whereabouts in the world their nearest relatives might be. doesn't mean to say that there's a direct connection necessarily, but it's a, it's a good uh, pointer to where they could have come from. You're also using shipping records? Yes, indeed, because uh, the, the colonisation of New Zealand by mice is recent enough so that the movements of the ships that could have brought them ha are all very well documented. And so there are only certain routes and certain ports of call where mice could have been picked up by cargoes and brought here and only some of them are potential carriers for mice because they were available at certain times and not at other times. So 
do you have any idea of when these European house mice arrived in New Zealand? The most obvious and uh, predictable connection is between the West European house mice, which came uh, with the first fleet uh, to Sydney in uh, after 1788 when the convict settlement was started there and they were supplied largely from Britain with uh, supply ships. But at various times in the early years of the Sydney settlement they got very hungry, they ran out of provisions, so they had to send ships to the nearest sources of provisions which some of them would have gone to British merchants in India. And the kind of mice that they could have picked up with supplies and also with uh, shiploads of cattle carrying the forage that the cattle would need, uh, those could only have been um, colonised by Southeast Asian mice. And uh, they could have come to Sydney too. Both of them could be there. The mystery is that there are no, uh, so far as we know yet, none of the Southeast Asian mice in Sydney. Ah, curious. It could be a sampling issue because uh, in our surveys around uh, mitochondrial DNA distribution in, within New Zealand, we found that the Asian and the European mice can be distributed at very fine scale. There's one place in Ekaterhuna that was a single carving shed that produced 16 mice, and some of them were the Southeast Asian and some of them were the European uh, family lineage, and they seem to be coexisting. So it's quite possible that, that a much finer grain of sampling within Sydney, especially around the early docks area, could find a remnant population of the Asian mice there, but it hasn't been done yet. And these mice in New Zealand, these two family lineages, they've interbred? Yes, in the far south. Um, they're, uh, everywhere that we go around in the far south, about 170 mice we've looked at in Otago and southern Canterbury, they all have the Southeast Asian maternal lineages. That means they all had Asian mothers. But of the 12 or so that we've looked at from down there in one survey and about 50 in another survey, they've all turned out to have European fathers. So that's a hybridisation event that seems to go one way, and that's another mystery. We don't quite know why it shouldn't be the other way as well. So our mice are not nearly as straightforward as we might have thought. Not at all, no. So there you have it. Immigration conundrums amongst our mice. Small rats eating big birds. And some alarming declines of our native wildlife. Just some of the many varied presentations at this year's New Zealand Ecological Society's conference. And next week on the show, we're off to a geology conference with the Geosciences Society of New Zealand to find out what rocks can tell us about our changing world. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at RNZ underscore science. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.